on today's show. I go into my office, I close the door. It sort of looked like the office we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I didn't even know what to do. It's like, yeah. what, what's the first step? There's the satellites, there's the technology, there's the content, you know, like there's the receivers, like just everything had to be dealt with from scratch. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, one of my old roommates from New York worked at Atlantic Records, and she was also one of my best friends. And I was like, well, we need content. Let me just start there. Right. And right. called her. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And within a year, and a half, you know, had done some of the first digital content licensing deals ever, mm-hmm. right? Well, mm-hmm. the first one was with Michael Bloomberg himself. The hmm. second one with was with Phil Kent, who at the time was head of CNN International out of London, but then went on to become all, head of all of, I think, Turner or, hmm. or whatever. A couple of years later, I was like, uh, you know, briefing Richard Branson and others on this new technology. I would be in Toulouse in like a big hangar with uh, Jean-Francois Gambert of Alcatel, like going through where we were with the satellites. I mean, it was just crazy. It all managed to work itself out Mm -hmm. because each point along the way, one story at a time, believers came in Mm -hmm. to play. And then, you know, I had the wisdom of the world at my fingertips. Five, four, three, two, one. One. Welcome to today's show. On today's show, we're going to be hanging out in the studio with Tiffany Norwood. And Tiffany truly is a force of nature. She is someone who uh, exudes energy. And I would have to tell you, I got fired up talking to her. Uh, Her story is really one of those stories that I think is inspiring to everyone. Um, She was uh, a female engineer and when there weren't a lot of them, in fact, and she sort of leveraged that knowledge and thinking to kind of combine creativity, engineering, uh, and truly business to become uh, just sort of a force in the early internet age, uh, raising over $700 million for uh, the, the first satellite company that was doing sort of XM radio. And so that sort of set her up on a path where she has been a just a dominator out there in the in the world doing things uh, in business and uh, communication. And today she's now working on sort of a new approach where she has been creating in some ways an event series designed to inspire creativity to get people excited. And uh, I think that role in uh, Tribaton is really one of those things that's allowed her to sort of take, think, take a new approach to creation, a new approach to communication engagement. And this is that creation event. Uh, it's one part rock and roll show, one part church service, all those things rolled into one that's something powerful. But I think she continues to find ways to create, to stand out, to be different, and to get her message um, of, of hope, of positivity, and of unlocking that inner innovator inside all of us. Uh, Tiffany is someone who has studied at some of the best schools and now is someone who's bringing that message to everyone to find their entrepreneurial skill set. And you're going to find in this conversation, uh, It'll definitely fire you up a little bit. Tiffany Norwood, everyone, enjoy the show. Awesome to have you here, number one. I think uh, it's thank fun. you for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> it is, yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> you know, we talked about this. We've, you know, we've we've sort of crossed paths over the last few years, and I think mm-hmm. what's been interesting to kind of for me as as following your journey is I see you probably like 
ahead of where a lot of people are in terms of this world out there of innovation. And you've had a fascinating, fascinating adventures. But mm-hmm. it's almost like there's been this shift that's that that's happened that you caught wind of it early. And that is kind of like the people center of innovation, right? There's mm-hmm. this, we have this fascination with Apple and everyone talks about Amazon and or the I technology. Think, or yeah, or the technology or whatever it is. But like, I, I love that you're fascinated with like, the person who creates that first spark, the the Bezoses, the Blakeleys, the Jobs, the Benioffs, like the or just the people who are kind of like innovating in their day to day life, and they're you know the artist or whoever it is. So, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about this sort of premise that you have, which is kind of the the individual as the center of the innovation world, and kind of how it's playing out in your life these days. Because I think again, you're, I think it's sort of kind of the wave is coming, and you're you've kind of been at the early parts of it, but mm-hmm. it's starting to crest a little bit. So, start there maybe a little bit about people at the center of this. Okay, so, I mean, this has been my life, Eric, and thank God. Uh, people <laughs> people can't see me on this podcast, but uh, I'm a black woman, and I was born in the late 60s. And so, you know, I had so many different um, dreams and things I imagined doing in my life that weren't reinforced by society. So, um, it actually started as far as me being ahead of this, like in the 70s mm. when I was a kid, which was um, having this strong feeling and then testing it, because I've always been sort of scientific method <laughs> as a kid, um, that uh, everything starts in the imagination mm. and that the imagination creates reality and that uh, the imagination is a way you know, to me, that God sort of prays to you or the universe prays to you. Mm-hmm. So from that, um, you know, I, I crafted and innovated this amazing life as uh, for anyone, right? But yeah. especially as a black woman who was born when Martin Luther King was still alive. So, you know, it was uh, 50, I've, I've been to 52 countries a lot of times as an entrepreneur or mm. innovator. Um, I've done seven startups. I've had two IPOs, including a company called World Space and XM Radio, which everyone knows. Um, I got my first patent at 22. I was uh, one of the creators of the first one strap backpack. Hmm. And so, all my life, I've been sort of capturing. You're like this the Forrest Gump of, uh, yeah, of tech awesomeness, but right? Cuter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, definitely cuter. You meant that, right? Yeah, I totally meant that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so it's been this lifelong pursuit, both um, as far as this algorithm of turning imagination to reality, and uh, you know, also practicing innovating everything and anything I can get my hands on mm-hmm. from myself to my school, to um, my community, to a technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so you, you, there's an article that I, you know, I was researching, there's an article that you wrote something that I think was really interesting. And, and I'll just give you the last part of it uh, in this quote that I thought was instructive. And, and I'd just like to hear you wrap on it a little bit. It said, I wanted you to know that I'm a very objective person who also believes in magic. Mm-hmm. And so like unpack that a little bit because I think that's like a really interesting way to think about it because it is this you you use words like imagine and you know imagination and magic and things like that to describe sort of this world but you're also like I mean you're like data driven as they come. You have yeah. all these pieces. So tell me how you reconcile those pieces of be- believing in magic while also being someone who's like, you know, super super data driven at the same time. Well, I mean, I don't feel that they're in conflict of each other. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you start with the premise that they're not, um, then it becomes much easier to reconcile. So then it becomes, you know, verifying, testing, like any sort of hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And as I said, it's been a lifelong pursuit for me. 
which um, means that you know I've, I've tried to break it in a variety mm -hmm. of different ways. And it's not the only hypothesis I have. I also have this whole hypothesis around aging that mm. we can talk about on another uh, <laughs> podcast that my friends thought I was kooky with until now with all of us in our 50s. We look very different. And they were like, what were you talking about? I'm like, too late now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I tested a lot. So, you know, as far as being a Data, having a data-driven background, uh, what you're referencing is that I went to Cornell, mm -hmm. electrical engineering, yep. economics, statistics. Um, you know, you're, also you're went a to classic Harvard, nerd. Yeah. yeah, Harvard Business School. Right. I'm a coder. I do a lot of of coding, and so very objective. Um, and because I've been pro imagination my whole life, I would come up with these big dreams, and then basically l using the framework that I now. Uh, talk about around the world, see if I could manifest them. Mm -hmm. And the crazier and the bigger they are, the better. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of like uh, what I felt Da Vinci was doing his whole hmm. life. And I, I was very obsessed with him and sort of Einstein and uh, Harriet Tubman mm -hmm. um, when I was growing up and God. Like, it, you know, it's this weird <laughs> dynamic, right? And so I'll give you an example. Like, I uh, originally self taught my. Uh, self-decode, and from that uh, matriculated into Cornell uh, Co College of Engineering in 1985, electrical engineering, computer science major. And, you know, a key part of the framework, the first two steps is around your dream, like what do you want? So I was very clear on what I want, and I started, you know, even down to it's Cornell and it's, right, you right. know, whatever. Because from there, I was going to go to Cornell Med School and be mm -hmm. an OBGYN. Don't ask me. Why. <laughs> it's, that part. Know, it's funny. I was so I, you know, I wanted to be a you know doctor as well. It's, it's this funny thing. Like there is a lot of people. It feels like, especially, you know, that that's the path you go, and you're gonna I'm gonna mm. become a doctor, right? Like that's sort of just what it is. Whereas, to your point, right? It's partially because I don't think we are able to imagine what's out, what's possible mm -hmm. besides this. Like that looks successful versus like what else does success look like? And I think today maybe things are different, yeah. but it is. There's a lot of people I think who have but that it's crazy. A little, a little bit crazier than that, yeah. as in. I also was going to do technology. I was also going to do startups and business. I'd already had mm -hmm. uh, a business in high school that did really well. Mm -hmm. um, I was also going to travel the world, and I was also going to be a musician. Out of all those things, you know, like med school was the hardest. So it drove <laughs> med school and sort of like I wanted formal tech training. Like I needed a school that, uh, you know, encompassed all of that. Sure. Um, and also my primary major, and then I wanted to do business. So basically what I'm saying is, if I was born of another generation, they would have been like ADD, right? <laughs> <laughs> but when I was growing up, it was considered more like being a polymath or mm -hmm. having multiple interests, mm -hmm. and they they supported it. And I wanted a university mm -hmm. that supported um, support it. So, like the the first two elements, as I was mentioning, with the framework is taking your imagination very seriously, mm -hmm. the dream, and then the very next step is crafting a story. Mm -hmm. So, I've always been a storyteller. It's even easier when you're a kid. It's mm -hmm. sort of a natural thing, right? Right. And so, um, the way that that looked, uh, you know, say with the dream of Cornell, and that was an innovation back then because few people code it. Few women code it, few mm -hmm. blacks code it, few black women code it, right? Mm -hmm. So it was, everyone's like, what are you, people didn't have computers, that sort of stuff. And so what that looked like was, um, 
you know, when I would talk to people about, I want to study computer science, I want to code, I want to like go to Cornell and da da da. It's like, are you sure? <laughs> you know, this, that. And so the story, and I, I talk about this in framework that there's three primary universal languages of influence and persuasion, and that's conviction, like expressing in words and action how right. much it means to you. Um, objectivity, so like facts, data, pictures, videos, prototypes, mm -hmm. right? Like something anchored in the real world is not enough that you really want it, mm -hmm. right? Or you like it. And then grace, like this aspect of being of service to others or the community or whatever. So what that looked like for this uh, was, you know, I'm going to Cornell. I'm only going to apply to Cornell College of Engineering, <laughs> computer science major. So if you could help me, yeah. I would really appreciate it. All the chips in one basket here, right? <laughs> and and I want to go there and and do that because I have these dreams of this, that, this, and that. And I'm literally going to travel and change the world. Mm -hmm. And then the response became different. The help, like, because you know, remember we didn't have Google. Like, I was lucky that I lived in D.C., so the Library right. of Congress was Google, but right. then it led to the Believers collaboration and then an active maintenance mm -hmm. of faith. And so, you know, going back to your question around, like, that perspective and sort of being ahead of the curve with it, um, and, and you were thinking more in recent times, it's actually been like a lifelong uh, thing, and that, you know, being data-driven, I constantly tested and mm -hmm. then constantly like um uh refine it mm -hmm. uh, you know i've even used it to uh manifest a dream around climbing to the top of mount etna and hmm. looking in hmm. um which i wouldn't recommend to your listeners because <laughs> it's actually not legal to do but you know if you've ever read journey to the center of the earth yeah i was like well let's see if i could do something really outrageous and basically still using that same framework hmm. With really bad Italian, I did it. <laughs> I did it with a friend. So yeah, I've tested it not just in startups, but in everything. It's awesome. One of the things I, I also think is is when I when I asked someone about you, uh, and I can't remember. Uh oh, uh, yeah, I know. No, it was good, but it was that um, you were described as the ultimate convener in kind of a way that mm -hmm. your one of your magics is being able to bring people together. And we were just talking before about this kind of concept of creating events around people, bringing people together. Tell me a little bit about the kind of like that sort of skill of like, because there's something really interesting. You know, we talk about one of the powers of creating things like books or podcasts mm -hmm. or events is that that the magic of it really is not that you create that thing, but that you bring people together in that journey. The people you interview for the book or the people that you interview on your podcast or the people that you like, this is an aspect of collaboration because the two of us together are doing something that hopefully yeah. will have an impact, like that kind of one plus one plus one equals 10 kind of idea. Mm -hmm. And I think you're doing that now with kind of these sort of like, with some of the stuff that you're doing, you even list in your framework, the concept of attract your tribe and then collaborate, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I, I was, it's funny, I was going to ask this question. I was like, I, I didn't, hadn't actually seen that connection there, but tell me a little bit about that. Like that is a thing that's important to you. And then maybe talk a little bit about how you're seeing that play out in this event, sort of like this, you know, this global domination event sort of thing that's happening um, in your life today. Yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately, to me, like, if you believe in other people and believe in the connection between other people, you're a billionaire. Mm -hmm. And part of what I talk about, you know, when I speak around the world about the framework, um, and in particular, this piece I called The Power of We, um, 
you know, I talk about the current faith as a currency mm-hmm. and the currency of faith and connection. And again, you know, spiritual belief is optional, but sure. uh, it's been in very important to me. But the the baseline um, requirements, like any good uh, scientist, is that one you believe we are connected somehow in the world, even if it's a great mystery. Mystery, and two that you believe in others to show up. Hmm. Um, when you need them and how you need them. Uh, maybe not precisely the exact second, but mm-hmm. that if you do your part and keep moving forward, even if you have no idea how to do it well mm-hmm. and or you're really scared, mm-hmm. that uh, people will show up to help you. Mm-hmm. And so because that's been so key for me and part of this you know, algorithm, so to speak, um, it, it means that in my life to make these things happen, you know, I've had to rely on others many times when I had the first dream of it or the first story of it or the first step of it. I had, I did not know those people mm-hmm. or where they exist in the world. Mm-hmm. I just know that they existed and mm-hmm. that eventually they would show up. And and they have. And so, and when I say like big, crazy things, uh, there's the Mount Etna, you mm-hmm. know, thing, which, uh, you know, I had, it ended up being to the equivalent of park rangers. Really? Me, yeah, yeah, which is why you cannot assume you know who the believers are, because if I was being too logical, I would have like hid from them because there were signs like, you can't, you Do know, not go, here. go past right. this line or whatever. Right. Um, or... You know, like when um, I was in my 20s, I raised nearly $700 million to, uh, you know, build um, three satellites. And we also invested in MP3 and some other things to sort of bring in the beginning of of this whole digital media Mm -hmm. uh, wave that started in the 90s. Um, And when when I did that, uh, the startup before, I'd raised $5,000, right? So it was a huge gap. But the process was the same. Right. And then, you know, I was like, first I need like some solid believers mm-hmm. to then, and then, um, you know, also uh, part of the arrangement when I had first spoke to Noah Samara, who uh, was the original dreamer of the idea, I was like, if I do this, I want to be head of international business development, you know, like at 27. And this mm-hmm. is before Zuckerberg or any of them. And I looked even younger than that. And he was like, look, if you raise that money, I've been trying for two years. You can do anything you like. <laughs> but the, the reality is sometimes, you know, be careful with what you wish for. Because sort of the first day that I was officially a part of the team. So we went from like five people. By the time I joined officially, it was, you know, 15 or so and everyone was like well done i go into my office i close the door it sort of looked like the office we're in right now mm-hmm. and i was like fuck <laughs> i didn't even know what to do it's like yeah. what, what's the first step there's the satellites there's the technology there's the content you know like there's the receivers like just everything had to be dealt with from scratch mm-hmm. and i had uh one of my old roommates from new york worked at Atlantic. 
records and she was also one of my best friends and I was like well we need content let me just start there right and called her and then you know one thing led to another and within a year and a half you know had done some of the first digital content licensing deals ever Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. the first one was with Michael Bloomberg himself the Hmm. second one with was with Phil Kent who at the time was head of CNN International out of London but then went on to become head of all of I think Turner or, Hmm. or whatever a couple of years later, I was like, uh, you know, briefing Richard Branson and others on this new technology. I would be in Toulouse in like a big hangar with uh, Jean-Francois Gambert of Alcatel, like going through where we were with the satellites. I mean, it was just crazy. It all managed to work itself out Mm -hmm. because each point along the way, one story at a time, Believers came in to mm-hmm. play, and then you know I had the wisdom of the world at my fingertips. Right. So right. it's more that um, than say like I wouldn't say I'm a big extrovert mm-hmm. or do well in like huge crowds mm-hmm. or like a football mm-hmm. tailgating party. <laughs> so you, but you, you, you know, part of the magic of that is like so take a not you and put them in that situation is that your ability to sort of like. S- tell stories about the future, right? This sort of, because I think there's always a set of people that are really good at taking these unknown unknowns and turning them into sort of like something that we can appreciate and understand. How, how did the storytelling part of this develop for you? Because I think that, you know, again, knowing you, I would say l- like, it wasn't just that like things worked out that you got believers at the right time. You sort of converted people who are like maybe on the fence into believers <laughs> a little yeah. bit. So how did you how did you develop that storytelling skill? And then and at the same token, like how do you you know teach others how to become better storytellers today? Because mm-hmm. I do think that's one of the things that I've learned is the hardest in turning someone into an author or a podcaster is getting them to believe that they can take facts that they hear and tell a story. Because it is, it's, I think it might be the biggest superpower that... It is the biggest superpower. And I'll yeah. tell you this, Eric, and, and thank you for recognizing it because um, for years and years and years, at first entrepreneurship wasn't cool, right? Totally. So, you know, as, poor. <laughs> yeah. So as I was doing these things as a kid, you know, I had this business in high school too, and then I was also a student entrepreneur, and and you know, so and eventually, you know, entrepreneurship started getting cool, mm-hmm. and then there were these programs on it and classes and whatever. But mm-hmm. I didn't have that, yeah. you know, when I, I didn't, was, I, I didn't have that. Like, this is a true story. When yeah. I, I had a business when I was in high school and college, that was making real money, like to the point where, like, I was. I was making, I don't remember what it was, like forty, fifty thousand dollars a year off this which thing. Is solid. Which is great, right? It was amazing. And then you know, and and then I go to my career counselor, my college career counselor, and this is so I'm I'm 41. So that was what so it was like 99-ish or so 98, 99-ish. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, so what do I do? Like, where am I? And I was like, I got this, I sort of give them the inventory. I got this business here that's doing this stuff. I could probably like keep doing that, make some more money. And they're like, oh, like, you don't want to do that. Like, get a real job. You went to college to yeah. get a job. And I was like, oh, okay. This is true. I mean, I, I had this business with making money. I took a job at $22,000 a year. Makes no it sense. Makes no sense, right? It makes no sense, but like, Eric. But that's like everyone told us is that like, this isn't a thing. Like you, you go to college so that you don't have to like do that slumming it entrepreneurship yeah. stuff. And like, you know, and it was weird. I mean, I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so it sort of didn't really matter that much. Like no one knew it, but like there was like magical stuff going on and yeah. yet not everyone had access to it. And so anyway, best laid plans, but there was me, my dumbass, shutting my company down <laughs> to go do but- it. 
but, but I mean, look at you now. Every practice counts. Yes. And we talk about that a lot in our framework, the cycle of yeah. practices, right? It's why I teach, though, I have to say, is because I think that there's a lot of people, and it's actually what led me to move from teaching entrepreneurship into creation. Like, mm -hmm. you know, my, my world is about teaching creation because I think that people need these gateway creation experiences that lead them exactly. into the next things, right? Like so, some practice. So it's the yeah. same thing as like what you did in high school, what I did in, you know, elementary school, the, the lemonade stand even exactly. counts. So you just keep yeah. expanding upon it. And, um, and, and so, you know, to that point, um, like in the eighties, when I was doing my uh, startup in college that we filed the patent for, mm -hmm. and it, you can imagine if you went through it in 99, <laughs> this is like 83, yeah. 84, um, sorry, 85, 87 or so. Um, and literally 85 was the year that we started entrepreneurship at Cornell and really? I was the original cohort. That's crazy. And it was just like very grassroots, yeah. but Cornell was very ahead of yeah, the Yeah, that's the early because I it was in yeah. college in 99 and I don't think there was a entrepreneurship. It definitely wasn't a thing, a normal thing, but yeah. I don't even think it was a like an opportunity you could do. I mean, it was very grassroots, but it was real, right? right? And we would do all this stuff. But the key thing is that um, we it was more of a convening and almost a support group than right. any sort of, because everyone was attacking us and telling us to get real jobs, especially with Cornell, especially all the debt Hi, and whatever. Tiffany, like, and I'm an aspiring entrepreneur. Yeah. And Hi, I will also say we just did what worked. Right. So right. there was nothing about pitches or whatever. Uh, I very quickly There's already- There's no business plans. Like that's yeah, not a thing either. Yeah. We did what we needed to do as far as a plan because I do believe in planning on paper, but not spending months in, and months right. and months at it. Right. Like it was definitely the reward, both the business and market reward, as well as the personal satisfaction was getting the first version out to the market where even if it was like one or two or three other people that weren't a part of your company mm -hmm. were using it, right? Mm -hmm. And then you would keep refining from there. What it also meant was that, um, you know, because we didn't have anything where we were taught to pitch, where we were just doing whatever worked and getting better at whatever mm -hmm. worked, um, a storytelling uh, part was very obvious. As I said, even when I was younger, um, I also had a big ticket scalping business in high school <laughs> because I was a musician too. Yeah. Uh, we would make thousands of dollars off concerts. And this is like in the eight, the early eighties. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Right. For sure. Even now that's in like high school. Yeah. Hustling money though. Right. Like yeah, it's, it's right? like what people don't realize is like, that's where a lot of these, it's like, and again, you never thought of it as a business. It was just a yeah, way to make did. money, right? Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I always thought of those things as like, those are just ways, because I had a, you know, these businesses, I just thought they were ways to make money that were better than other things that people made money at. I never was like, oh, I'm starting a business. I was like, I'm just making money. Yeah. And it, like other people have to do like work at places. I'll just make money this way. And to me, it's starting businesses are about doing things that you love and that other people love. So I never thought hmm. of that in conflict either. I thought all that can be all one the same. You know, it's like a requirement. And so- have to do a lot of storytelling with that because also my parents would have to like write letters saying, oh, that we couldn't go to school today, but not for what it really was, which is that we were standing in line outside of Hex to get tickets for the police synchronicity concert or whatever. Um, and so that storytelling, no matter what it was that I was doing, it was of um, extreme benefit and mm -hmm. had like 
an extreme return on investment. Mm-hmm. So as a result, I just kept using it more and more and more. And mm-hmm. I did, and I am, this is one thing, there's like a couple of things that I think I'm world-class at. And one of them is as a storyteller. Hmm. And the type of storyteller that is important for innovator and entrepreneurs. So there's a lot of different type of storytellers. Mm-hmm. Like there are people that report or deliver information or entertain. Entrepreneurs are storytellers for influence to action, mm-hmm. such as to get investors or Mm -hmm. customers or partners or someone to join their team Mm. or tribe. That type of storyteller, I am best in class at. Mm. And I would say that... um, There's 700 million reasons why. (laughs) Yeah, 700 million reasons why, right? And I would say that for anyone that's looking to be an entrepreneur or a creator or an innovator, because storytelling is so important, there are things that, you know, as I got older as an entrepreneur, in quotes, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like in my mid-20s, um, late twenties, like as I was coming in this experience with World Space and XM Radio, and the stakes were so high, mm-hmm. um, like I took improv classes mm. and creative writing classes. It never once uh, crossed my mind to do this thing called a pitch. And then when I start right. hearing them right. and having to judge them, um, I would be like, "Whoa, yeah. no! You need to take an improv class." <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> those are or creative right. writing, right. like to be able to express it in in writing is mm-hmm. equally as important. Um, and that that's a lot, you know, more relevant mm-hmm. to being an entrepreneur than, um, you know, say taking a pitch class per se. I hope you don't teach a pitch class. No, well, or- <laughs> I, I mean, like, so I, it's, it, it's a funny thing, right? Like, I get a, a fair number of people who are like aspirational entrepreneurs, and there's this mm-hmm. question of like, well, why should I take your class and do a book or do a podcast? And I'm like, listen, I, I will tell you what, like, you will actually, A, learn how to see stories, because I think that's the first part of it. You have to mm-hmm. like see stuff going on and be like, there's a story in here I can extract, and then be able to like understand how to package it and be able to tell it. Because I think those are like all separate pieces of it. To be world class, you sort of have to be able to recognize that there's a story here to be told. Mm -hmm. To be able to pull the information and sort of like say, okay, I got all the stuff that I need. And then to be able to tell it, those things. I think that like oftentimes people just assume that you stand up there and you start talking. And it's like, it's a real process, right? It really is. And so in, in, in my standpoint, I've actually sort of spent a lot of time teaching people both like how to pull the raw materials, how to like find a story framework and then sort of like structure in it. And then eventually they will learn. Like it's mm. it's probably a little more natural for some people. But how do you tell someone who you you know a younger a younger Tiffany? How so do you teach her to, to go? How do I teach? Yeah, how do you someone teach to them to tell stories? So actually, I do teach uh, people to storytell. Like I have this workshop. Um, that's called Storytelling for Entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and Sort of Innovators, and it's subtitled, It's a Narrative, Not a Pitch. So <laughs> yeah. one start of the there, ways right? that I start is by saying, write it out as a story, as a narrative first, and it's uh, the story of the successful future of whatever you imagine. Don't get into what could go wrong, but focus initially on what can go right. Hmm. And then later, you know, we go into refinement of anticipating what can go wrong and having the answer for it. But your first story, because I've always been predominantly an innovator, an inventor entrepreneur, mm-hmm. frontier technology entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to describe as a narrative what this thing is and how it will impact society or that person's life mm-hmm. um, is truly important. The other thing is when I have people get up and practice it, um, I do not allow any PowerPoints. Mm. I'm like, it should stand on its own. That's right. That's right. Um, the PowerPoint shouldn't be a crutch. If you have no time to do a PowerPoint, it should be okay. It should be that 
uh, powerful as a mm-hmm. narrative. And oh, by the way, uh, a lot of things as far as um, big connections and finding my tribe or being able to go like five steps forward has happened not in front of a computer screen. So what, are you going to be screwed or fucked if you can't yeah. whip out your PowerPoint? Right, right. right. Um, also, uh, you know, Jason Calcanis, the, he, he talks about, he's a kind of, he wrote a book called, um, angel, I think is what it is. He, he's sort of a Silicon Valley investor. He does, but he's, uh, one of the things that he described that I always find interesting in this concept of a pitch is he talks about most people act as a color commentator versus mm-hmm. a play by play guy. Mm-hmm. So if you think about in sports, right, you have two people, one person is just like sort of telling, telling you the story of what's going on. And there's the, in the, the, uh, the action is happening behind him, right? Mm-hmm. Like his voice is, his or her voice is sort of the lead. And you basically talk about these sorts of things. Whereas the the color commentator is like going and recapping and saying, you see here, right? Like they're pointing mm-hmm. to the screen, they're doing circulars. Where the play-by-play guy is like telling the story in richness so that you could have the screen off and still understand exactly. what's going on. So it. it's an interesting, I'd never heard anyone sort of describe it that way, but I think oftentimes what he would sort of say is most people act like color commentators, whereas most of us need to be play-by-play. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting <laughs> framework. I like it. I like yeah, it. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it helps because I am a visual thinker. So when I'm describing stuff, um, I have a vision in mind. Mm-hmm. I also will work a lot with writing out the narrative and knowing it. Um, but sort of getting back to teaching others, you know, also I talk about the the three universal languages of influence and connection, as I, I mentioned to you er, mm-hmm. earlier around the conviction, objectivity, and grace, mm-hmm. you know, because I've been 52 countries, some for holiday, but mainly most for <laughs> uh, creating and living and, and starting up stuff in together. Um, and so, you know, the idea of always having the luxury of doing a deep dive to understand your audience or uh, you know, access to a lot of the data that you have now wasn't there, but I still had to get the same results. Mm-hmm. So I started from the premise, but who knows with all this, the travel to space that what I did know was that there would be, uh, it would be an audience full of human, fellow human beings mm-hmm. and that um, there were, and that the goal was initially connection because I'm looking for my tribe to mm-hmm. help me, mm-hmm. um, not the delivery of information and that, uh, people tend to connect if you have a nice balance of conviction, objectivity, and grace. And if you're weak on any of those, then um, you're gonna you might have some people like connect to it, but your hit rate is going to be a lot hmm. lower, right? So connection, ob- object, objectivity, and grace. Conviction, conviction, objectivity, and grace with the goal of connection, right? Got Versus it. delivering information. That's interesting. And so then, you know, this the scientists in me, and usually I make people come to the workshop to learn all this, Eric. I think <laughs> this is all, the first time Ooh. I've like disclosed it. Because what, what I'm fascinated by in this yeah. one is, and, and the reason I think it's interesting is your from a storytelling standpoint, a lot of what you're talking about from a pitch standpoint is about pitching it verbally or sort of mm-hmm. those ways. I'm listening to it thinking about when people are writing the introduction of their book or they're mm-hmm. writing the descriptor or they're, they're they're doing their podcast promo or whatever it is. There's a similar sort of thing about this concept of like getting people invested in what this is. Yeah. And that those sort of things, it's just hearing in the back of my mind and listening to you thinking about it, it's like people oftentimes have this, they sort of underplay the, the, the beginning. Mm-hmm. But they underplay it because they're like, well, this is just the start and then everyone's going to do the rest. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about saying what you're talking about is that's sort of the whole whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, is yeah, getting it is. people to do those things gets the rest. I always tell people is like, listen, when someone's 
bought your book or they've downloaded the first episode of your podcast or they've come to your event, they basically have only committed to the first 10 minutes. <laughs> they can always bounce. Mm -hmm. So how do you get people con connected to that? And it's interesting hearing you talk about those sort of things as the pieces that'll do it when you're yeah. hooking someone, right? The, the initial connection, yeah. And it plays out whether it's a video or audio or live speech or written, you know, mm -hmm. it almost doesn't matter. I mean, you can then refine it based on how people are reacting and connecting mm -hmm. to it, but very quickly you need to get out there and be telling it to other people. I mean, with everything, again, it's about going to market, right? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, now that I do a lot of public speaking, I'll meet a lot of people that want to be public speakers, <laughs> right. as you probably do with they want to be published authors, right? Yeah. And I always say, well, go out there and start speaking speaking in public because it doesn't count if you're doing it in your bathroom, right? right? And right. then you'll get a sense of it. You don't have to have the perfect speech, but have, you know, a reasonable speech. Um, so, you know, again, you, you craft that first story, you use those universal languages, you start telling it, looking for connection points. Um, you realize you, you, you're conscious that the goal is connection, um, that attention is a gift, right? Mm -hmm. And that, uh, you, you use this scorecard, which I'll use in, in when I'm judging for pitch contests and working with entrepreneurs, which is I'll point to someone else in the room and tell them to tell me the story oh, that the entrepreneur just said. And, and usually the audience actually is, you know, a very highly curated audience that's, right. you know, very well informed and usually has more of an awareness than the average person hmm. of whatever's being talked about, you know, because I predominantly will do uh, be a tech entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And when they stumble, you know, the, yeah. the speaker or the entrepreneur gets it. And I'm like, so... And objectively, what you're trying to do is get the story to leave the room. Interesting. Very, very few people write a check or sign a contract or join your company from the first story, right? Very few, very unlikely necessarily that those believers or the tribe that you need are necessarily in the room or at mm. the grocery store or the dry cleaner or the subway where you're telling the story. But if it can the leave yeah. the room, hmm. right, then it be, it goes viral. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is the analog viral, yeah. right, which That's I've funny. used always. I'm actually not as as uh, well-versed on the, the digital viral, ironically, because the analog works so well for me. Have you had any really good stories that happen when you basically ask the audience for this one? Has there ever been a time when they that they uh, that they pitched it better than the entrepreneur? <laughs> and no, <laughs> not yet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It'll be interesting to go back maybe to some of the people that I taught the first time and mm -hmm. re teach it. Mm -hmm. I haven't really had the opportunity to do that mm -hmm. as much because I've been trying to spread the word mm -hmm. to as many. But usually when people get have that experience, they get it. And so say by the fourth or fifth, they start like, because they had time to start tweaking and, and right, learning. Right. Right. But but the main thing is that when they see it and get it and they're like, ah, and if they know that their um their scorecard is around the story leaving the room, mm -hmm. then they know how to test it. And I'm like, look, test it with your boyfriend or girlfriend mm -hmm. or your parents. It doesn't matter. Any reasonable human being should be able to export that story for mm -hmm. you. It's interesting. And, and keep refining it the until they do. The room. And that they want to. Right. So they both have right. to want to 
and be able to. to. Right. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. And it's it's a it's a simple thing too because I think we oftentimes don't realize. I, I talk about this a lot. We don't think in outcomes. What is the outcome of this? Yeah. You know, and I think it, what what you're you're framing here a little bit is that the first conversation is always about that connection to have a second conversation or the third or the fourth or mm-hmm. to your point, the story leaving the room. And uh, and I think if you frame that as a type of story, as a, you know, as a sort of a portable story, it, it frames the way you tell it differently. I think there's someone, one of the, the things I remember is is that uh, that someone said that one of the best places to learn how to get better at storytelling is to go to is watch preachers, priests, rabbis. Great, They're yeah. really great because that's sort of what they're designed to do is go forth and spread the word. But they mm-hmm. like get really good at those sorts of like repeating patterns, you know, using common story elements and things like that. That that it is. But that's right. Their their goal is to get you to talk about it after when you're having donuts after <laughs> after yeah. after the service. Yeah, and as you were saying, sort of in the very beginning of of this uh, section of the podcast, it is like a tremendous superpower once you get um, good at it, Mm -hmm. because we live in a narrative-based reality, so the question isn't, uh, did the tree make a sound when it fell if no one was there to hear it? Mm -hmm. The question is, did the tree make a sound or even exist at all if no one talks about it Mm -hmm. and if the story doesn't spread? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. And so, literally, if you are a compelling storyteller, you own the future, you own reality, you own, I mean, even if it's a lie, right? right? And right. that's some of the danger when we see, like, with, uh, you know, the rise of authoritarianism or any of those things and, and the importance of the First Amendment, right. right? It's like he or she who controls the story has tremendous uh, power mm-hmm. and controls reality. And you know, having been to 52 countries over a span of 30 plus years, I've seen uh, maybe th- the, the beginnings of the end of three democracies firsthand. Wow. So like I was in Venezuela in 1991. Mm. I was in Europe starting in the late 80s. So all the Milosevic mm-hmm. uh, Yugoslavia stuff, which... Uh, for your listeners, Yugoslavia no longer exists. Yeah, exactly. It's Croatia and Serbia and Montenegro, which I've all been to, um, and Bosnia. Bosnia, Herzegovina. Yeah. 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 Um, and then I was in Turkey in, in 2012. And, and so, you know, it's that important. Um, if we want to then translate it to uh, tech and entrepreneurship, which I love translating everything to. Of course. You know, I mean, come on, look, look at Steve Jobs. Right. Right? right. Yeah. I mean, he actually wasn't necessarily the best technologist, and I'm not sure if he even coded. That was like Wozniak, right? Yeah, Wozniak did all the coding. I think that he was he was a when they were working on it, he was a QA guy for, yeah, for a, Atari. Yeah. Because I, you know, I was I did Atari. Like I've been, you know, in it since the 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Commodore 32, Commodore 64, yeah. Zork, Zork, Dungeons yes. and Dragons. Yes. Oh, by the way, if you're into Zork, I have like an original. Really? Uh, yeah. Still. Super cool. Uh, that was but, there was two next door neighbors, Brian and Brian and the three of us would play Zork a lot and, yeah. and uh, that was my I still fondly look back on that yeah, one yeah that was my favorite game of, yeah. of all and you know I think they have it online now really? in the cloud yeah. um, actually if you want to become an, a good storyteller and hone your storytelling skills that helped me a lot Interesting. as a kid because for those of you who don't know Zork Zork was um, a purely narrative Word based, based. <laughs> of fantasy, fantasy game so mm-hmm. it was actually a game based on storytelling hmm. 
And I mean, that's the way I looked at it. There was you know? a there's a young man here named uh, Emilio who told me the story about how he was he grew up in kind of a, a rough childhood, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of challenging, in and out of, of different family homes through his extended family. And he, uh, I think he was, he said that he was like a seventh grader and basically was reading at a first grade level or so. And he convinced his his grandmother over the summer to let him buy a series of video games that all had like 13 plus reading levels. And he was playing, you know, again, at the time, these are video mm-hmm. visual based games, but they had a lot of reading to him. His reading level went from, you know, sort of first grade into uh, like sort of sophomore level in, co- in high school because mm-hmm. of that sort of thing. So I think there's something to this like, engaged style reading, listening, learning, like that yeah. I think is powerful. And it's, it was interesting, I think, because there's like this pushback oftentimes that video games can't be that good for us. They're not helpful. But I think in the right way, they certainly In moderation, can. they yes. are, like <laughs> yes. many things, right? Like right. even, there is even a scenario in which uh, drinking water is deadly. That's right, that's you right. Know? And so in moderation, it is. And, and at the time, you know, when I was big into... Uh, video games, uh, it couldn't help but be moderated because, um, you know, you might have your consoles and might, you know, you need the TV. Your family was not going to let you commandeer the TV or you'd be at the pizza joint playing Pac-Man or Miss Pac-Man on the table. You couldn't like stay in the restaurant all day. That's right. And, um, or if you had your Commodore or then eventually the Apple, uh, it, it was just, you had to basically moderate in a way that now you it requires more self-discipline. Right. But I think, um, you know, all the technology and the games and the apps and the content, you know, very powerful and very uh, useful in a variety of ways, including coding, mm-hmm. right? So I, I'm also a big advocate on everyone learning to code, mm-hmm. even if you have zero interest mm-hmm. in b- being a professional coder, mm-hmm. just like I'm a big advocate um, and not just for selfish reasons on everyone learning uh, my framework and the entrepreneur and creator skill set mm-hmm. because I feel like it's the skill set of the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't learn to uh, write just to be a New York Times bestseller. Right, right. Um, and, and, and then around the coding, uh, one of the reasons why I say it, and it actually goes back to storytelling is that coding is a form of storytelling. It's it's a very precise form of storytelling, right? right? And then the computer tells the story in exactly the same way over and over and over again until you literally affect reality. Mm-hmm. And and when you you learn to code, you realize that like yeah. even if it's subconscious, mm-hmm. I learned a lot. I was a I was a reform. I'm a reformed lawyer. Mm-hmm. My, oh no! My, I know. <laughs> well, but it's interesting. My my co-founder and roommate was a mm-hmm. really great developer and so he and I he taught me you know some of the basics not that I could do anything dangerous but like I had a GitHub and I could like you know look for bugs and stuff like that but it was interesting it's about writing instructions you know in some ways Mm -hmm. in both you know I was a corporate lawyer writing like legal instructions and he was writing sort of you know operation instructions but I think there's something interesting about being able to write in a way that is uh, informative or gets the right point across but it's also instructions to what so you're like with anything, you know, and so it goes back to what I was saying, which is the first step is the dream. So it's instructions to a certain result, right? right? right. If yep. then an outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Then that, right? Yep. And and you're looking for, you know, that ultimate outcome. And then once you figure it out and can tell that story in just the way to get that outcome, then the computer will tell it exactly that way forever yep. and ever and until someone changes something, changes something in the up, ecosystem, right? yeah. like the you know the operating uh, system or something, yeah. right? 
So I want to do. I want to make sure you cover two things before I. I, uh, I know you've got a busy. I'm thankful you came in, but I want to mm-hmm. make sure. So, so two things I wanted to talk about a little bit. I think before we do, one is I want to chat a little bit about this. You know, it's it's really interesting because you have a technology mindset, perspective, mm-hmm. like experience. You've been in, you know, big tech. You've been in, you know, cutting edge frontier tech and things mm-hmm. like that. And yet here you are sort of talking about the power of storytelling, the power of innovation and, and these sorts of things. What is it like sort of, it, it feels like we've gone from an extreme where it was like, nobody knew anything about tech to where everyone, you know, got too wrapped up in the tech. And now you're talking about more about the story, the imagination, the sort of dream the around humans. the innovator. Yeah, the human yeah. part of it. <laughs> how has that sort of like changed for you? And how do you see sort of the future as, Innovators not necessarily needing to be technical per se; they need to be sort of future aware and be able to sort of describe that future. Mm-hmm. Well, they never need it to be technical. I think it was something that was promoted for whatever reason, and everyone drank the Kool Aid. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I know people that originally taught themselves to code on paper. That goes to the storytelling aspect, right? right. Because they uh, didn't have access to a computer yep. um, in the beginning. And so to me, it's never been that way, but the, the advertising made people think, uh, it was, uh, personally, you know, going through this whole, you know, experience, it's like, I sort of feel like I'm, you know, at this point in my life where I'm able to be completely and wholly myself all the time. Hmm. Every part of me can just be on full display from my techie side to my uh, creative side Mm -hmm. to my spiritual side. Mm -hmm. Like I just, uh, you know, was able to finally convene all of them Mm -hmm. and and package it um, into something that is so authentic for me. It just feels... right. Really great, you right, know. Right. Um, but it, it's this uh, and moment in time. That, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. It's this moment in time. So you know, a lot of things had to change with society and mindsets, and and people catching up to technology, to you know, spirituality being more pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all those things, and it, it's been you know a great time. To be alive, but it was always that for me. I just right. was forced to segment right. it. Right. So I'll give you an example. When I was at Cornell, we—I don't know if we were on air when we were talking about this, but it was you know electrical engineering, but it was also pre-med, econ, uh, uh, and statistics and other things, right? And I knew that you know I would continue to be an entrepreneur, so I wanted the business side of things. And back then, majors were very siloed. Right. So right. when I finished the requirements of electrical engineering, I applied to Cornell again in, really? in junior year uh, to the College of Arts and Sciences as an <laughs> econ major and got accepted a second time. Very few people know this. So I have That's like crazy. the honor of having been accepted to Cornell twice, and I was still able to graduate on time. Really? Now they have mashup uh, programs, huh. but that was the only way I could do it. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. And so to me, it's just a lot easier to have that all convene. And I think it's going to be so powerful for our future. Um, and that the key skill set is going to be the skill set of like being a creator and, and creativity. And what I mean by that is not so much painting or music, what I mean is, again, going back to taking your imagination seriously and feeling that you have a basic process to turn 
things that you imagine into reality right, and right. and to make it useful and valuable to a society or a market or whatever. Um, everything else is being automated and replaced by technology and computers, but I think that aspect can never go away. Hmm. Hmm. It's really, it's me. <laughs> it, I mean, it's... It's it is fascinating. I think you know it's this this. Uh, I think again. I still think that you're you're at this again unique place where you're in. You you have these forces that you can uniquely bring together. That I think it's fun to to hear. And I you know maybe before we were talking about this sort of. I want to call it like it's almost like a show now that you're bringing together. Tell mm-hmm. me tell a little bit about that because I was inspired by. You know, as I said, one of the things when I studied all these creators, right? We studied all the Forbes thirty under thirty to see what are the things that they did because it's. The people that succeed today are creating things earlier, but they're not necessarily starting companies. Mm-hmm. And you're creating an experience, I guess, is maybe the best way mm-hmm. to think about it. And it's one of the things that we saw is that people are creating events or conferences is that power of bringing people together and that shared experience is one of the powerful ways that people can, again, demonstrate their purpose, share. So tell me a little bit about this and how it's been been in manifesting for you and changing changing. Uh, for others. Yeah. So, you know, like for the framework, I don't just do lectures or workshops. I mean, I do do that, but you know, what's really exciting to me is taking the framework and creating content and experiences around it that uh, people can connect to and, and understand, you know, what the principles are, right. um, you know, that are, are fueling it. And because, you know, I have this dream that that skill set, the entrepreneurial skill set, is as well known as reading, writing, and math uh, worldwide. It had to also be universal. So, you know, part of my inspiration has been Hamilton, you know, mm-hmm. what's done with regards to the origination of our country mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. story of our founding fathers. Um, Schoolhouse Rocks. Yes. Remember that? Yes. Junction, junction. Yes. What's that function? Um, and looking at various things, uh, muses like that. Also, I went to like a Lady Gaga concert hmm. and looking at what Beyonce does and, 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 um, the confessionals of reality TV shows, mm-hmm. which, uh, basically is where they go into the, the room with like a white background and give you the backstory right. of what just happened or what it's about to happen mm-hmm. um, and some aspects of TED talk and show and tell. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I created this whole like experience around the framework um, that drew upon all those elements and mm-hmm. I debuted it in Chicago a couple of months ago and yeah, it was sold out and people loved it. The audience ranged from 18 to 78 hmm. and it was almost equally half male, half female hmm. and you know, maybe 15% were techies or entrepreneurs. Mm. And so it was great to see the fulfillment of that dream and that people got it. You know what I mean? They got they they understood the framework and the process when it was presented to them in that way. And they got the importance of it, you know, and how it could be applied to, uh, you know, transforming or innovating your community mm. or school or, mm. or government. Yeah. It's a powerful, it is a powerful medium that I think people don't really, like, there's this, it's funny, right? Like, I think everyone's going so digital, and to your point about going analog, and, but I think those, the power of creating shared experiences is huge. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think that, that concept of, like, 
designing an experience that makes people feel special, connected, all those sorts of things is is uh, is interesting. And and I, I think again plays on your ability to tell stories. But it's not only like in that case sometimes to tell stories, but to experience the story. You're mm-hmm. you're actually are like making the story and part of it, which is an uh, that medium itself of like of events and conferences and shows and experiences mm-hmm. and theater is I think something that I think is uh it's it's an amazing one that I think people don't always appreciate how brilliant great event creators and imaginaries yeah. are like, or live shows right. like and how hard it is yes. oh my god yes. thank god I'd never done one before until that one because mm-hmm. I would have been like okay I'll debut it in 2020 you know like I had <laughs> the, the whole, like to executive produce and write and direct and then I also had ca- cast it for other people and like the you know as the dreamer the storyteller mm-hmm. the whatever mm-hmm. Um, as well as uh, starring in it myself, mm-hmm. I was like, ooh, thank God. Yeah. You know, ignorance is bliss <laughs> yeah, exactly. because the fact that I you know, had, did that in a few months was crazy. But on the flip side, it's been awesome because now I have this whole like tribe of other story makers and filmmakers mm-hmm. and directors. And, and it's been super cool. Like I hung out with Warrington Hudlin a few months ago, you know, he did Boomerang and right. House Party. Right. Yeah, it's right. just like, that alone was worth it. You know what I that's mean? Awesome. <laughs> exactly. I, that's, a great, that's a great story to add to your repertoire. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah.